Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Isn't anything at work? Here in Ruth, and, and that's one of the reasons I, I love this story, and so many of us do. God is is it it shows us what it looks like in uh, in in real life and day to day life. And so we pray that you would meet with us here in this text. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each and every one of our hearts be pleasing uh, in your sight. And this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. World Magazine ran a profile a couple of, uh, several weeks ago, it was earlier this summer, it was a profile about a, a camping ministry, a Christian camping ministry called Ironwood Springs Christian Ranch. And I say it was a profile of the camp, but really it was, it was a profile of the founder of the camp. Uh, and the man's name is Bob Bardwell. Uh, Bob Bardwell graduated from seminary back in 1973. So, so he's an older man. He graduated from seminary in 1973, and his plan when he finished that seminary degree was to use his degree in a camping ministry. Uh, a Christian camping had been a big part of his own testimony and how he had come to know the Lord, and that was his goal. He was going to go out and start or become part of something that had to do with the Christian camping ministries. Uh, but then life took a tragic turn for Bob Bardwell. Uh, about a month after he graduated from seminary, he was uh, working for his parents. His parents actually owned a, a heavy construction business. All of this was up in Minnesota is where he's from. Uh, his parents owned a heavy construction business, and he was working for them, just kind of making some money before he found a placement. And uh, there was an accident. Uh, there was an accident with a heavy piece of machinery, and as a result of the accident, he lost all use of his legs. Basically, uh, a heavy piece of equipment fell on, his, fell on him in, and uh, severed his, his uh, spinal cord. And so he, he was a paraplegic thereafter. And uh, complete change of plans for, for Bob. Uh, and the next few years were really hard for him. This profile went through. He, he struggled to make sense of why God would let this happen. He, he became very depressed. He was actually married, and his marriage fell apart. They, they couldn't, couldn't get through it. So it was just an awful, awful time for him. But then the Lord, just gradually, there was no flash-in-the-pan moment, but just the Lord began to bring healing and, and uh, perspective into his heart, just turned things around. He started to come to terms with what he was dealing with, and he began to dream. He began to dream about what God could do through his experience. You know, Rick Warren used to say, God never wastes a hurt. And uh, Bob Bardwell had that same idea. He began to dream what God could do through his own pain. And that's what led him to found the Ironwood Springs Christian Ranch. This was in 1976. Uh, and it's a Christian camp, it's a Christian camping ministry. They have a variety of Christian camping programs, but their, their main focus, the thing they're known for, is their programs for people with disabilities. And really most of the, the programming is oriented around that. Um, children, adults, cognitive disabilities, physical disabilities. Uh, they have specific programs for caregivers who are struggling with burnout because it's so hard. Uh, they actually, even in recent years, have expanded to veterans. And so they actually have a whole ministry now to vets who came home from, from battle and, and have you know, different kinds of injuries from, from war. And, and so God has just blessed that and taken uh, his, his pain and his, his own commitment, uh, Bardwell's own commitment to live out the Lord's love. God has taken all of that and made so much good out of it. Uh, that's how Bob summarized it. My accident was not the path I'd have chosen, he told world, uh, but it's what God had for me. And he has blessed me. 
He's blessed me abundantly. Bardwell is a good example of, of what we're looking at today here in, in Ruth. I was meditating on all the pain that all the different people in this book experienced. We've talked about Ruth's pain. We've talked about Naomi's pain. I think Boaz has some pain of his own. It's not really dwelt on in the book, but there's a pretty good chance he's a, he's a widower. Uh, and, and so he has his own pain that he's brought to, to all of this. And yet, and yet uh, he, they, they, all the people in this story, especially Ruth and Boaz, are committed to living out God's love. We have two weeks left, like I said a minute ago, here in this book. Next week, we're going to finish by actually bringing it all back to Jesus. I want to do the last sermon. We're going to focus on uh, the the theme of redemption and and how Ruth, this little book early in your Old Testament, looks ahead to Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, That's next week. Before we do that, I want to come back one more time to what I've told you is maybe the overarching theme uh, in the book of Ruth. It's either this one or sovereignty, but the one I want to talk about today is loving kindness. I want to talk about loving kindness. Um, I, I did. I made the case uh, several times, actually. I know at least two of the sermons. We've talked about uh, the idea that this is one of the major themes. And it's this Hebrew word, chesed, kind of fun to say. Uh, chesed is the Hebrew word. And, and that word describes God's self-sacrificing, grace-oriented love. And, and God is always the one with whom it orients. Human beings also can show Oh, I'm going to use loving kindness so I don't choke up here, but uh, we often translate chesed as uh, loving kindness. Uh, humans can show loving kindness too, but it is only as we mirror what God does. And so it's, it's that self-sacrificing, grace-oriented love. And it runs like a thread. It runs like a thread through the book. Uh, it was the, in chapter one, we saw Ruth uh, show this kind of love to Naomi. Right? Ruth shows it for Naomi. In chapter 2, we see Boaz show it to, to, uh, to Ruth and to Naomi as well, but really Ruth mostly there in chapter 2. Uh, in chapter 3, uh, we see uh, Ruth actually shows chesed to, to Boaz. He says as much. We'll look at that verse later, but in chapter 3, verse 10, she shows it to him. And so now as we get to chapter 4, all of this kind of comes together. All the threads tie up into a big bow, and we see the culmination of love and kindness in the way Boaz brings this all together. And so the lesson for us, I just want to look at how it concluded. Uh, we'll do the, 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 post, uh, the pro, pro post log uh, at the, uh, next week. But, but as we look at the, how the action concludes, we see that the love way to live, the loving kindness way to live, the God, God's love way to live is, is the best way. It really is the best way to live. That's one of the lessons of this little book. And so for the next few minutes, uh, we're going to, like I said, look at what happened in the first half of chapter four. We'll grab a couple of details from chapter three that I never got to, and we'll explain them and wrap them into the story. And I want to go through this by looking at three reasons this right here is true. And so I want to show you three reasons that loving kindness is better. Three reasons that the love way to live is the best way to live. So that's what we're going to do as we look through um, this last part of the story. So number one, uh, the first reason uh, is that a life of loving kindness is willing to sacrifice for other people. It's better because it puts itself out there for others. It is willing to sacrifice for others. And we see this with both Ruth and Boaz. We see it with both of them here as the, as, uh, in this latter part of the story. Uh, I'll start with Boaz and spend most of my time with him since chapter four does. But, uh, we'll, so we'll, but, but we'll see it with Ruth too. 
So at the end of chapter 3, if you've got your Bible, you can look at it. Kind of, chapter 3 ends with Ruth goes home. She goes back to the house where she and Naomi are staying. And uh, she kind of shows, look, he gave me a bunch of grain. And he says he's going to do something. He's going to fix this. He's going to deal with this for us. And Naomi says he, he will do it. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of action. He'll do what he said he's going to do. Uh, verse 18, he will not rest until the matter is settled today. Well, now we see as chapter four begins, we see that she's absolutely right. Naomi has read him right. Uh, He seizes the initiative. Boaz seizes the initiative in verse one. And that's why he goes to the town gate, which is a little weird to us. Why do you go to the gate of the town to to take care of something? Well, it's one of those cultural things. Uh, In their culture, this is where uh, a lot of day-to-day life happens at at the city gate or the town gate. Um, it's where uh, it's a little analogous to like the town green. Uh, if you think of colonial, uh, you know, colonial days in America, the town green was the center of life or the town common, but it wasn't only colonial days. I mean, even here in Atlantic, right, we've got the, the common downtown, the green and the courthouse is there. And a lot of, you know, businesses are down there. And, and that's how the town gate functioned in an ancient uh, city in, in, in Israel and some of those other surrounding cultures as well. And so uh, goods would be sold, meetings would happen when the town fathers needed to deal with some business. A lot of times court hearings, if somebody was accused of stealing or something else, um, a lot of that would take place right there at the town gate. And so Boaz goes to the town gate and he, he uh, assembles, he basically assembles a hearing to deal with this legal issue that he raised uh, back in chapter three, this whole idea Ruth has asked to be redeemed by him. He says, well, there's somebody else who, who actually has a stronger claim. So I'm going to go to the city gate and deal with this legally. So he, he invites the man in question. It was there in verse one, the man who is the other kinsman redeemer. He invites him. He says, come sit down, friend. And the guy comes and sits down. Uh, and then he gets witnesses. He actually assembles a court. And so he finds 10 uh, respected men, uh, the, you know, elders of the town in that broadest sense, and all men whose, whose opinion and uh, own integrity would be trusted. He sits them all down. They're going to be witnesses to this transaction that's going to go on. All right, so that's why they're all there. So he's got his, his hearing arranged, and he jumps in, and he starts with his presentation. And as Boaz begins, he actually brings out some information that we have not had access to yet. He tells us something we didn't know up until this point, although I mentioned it last week, so you guys know. But as readers, we don't know yet. And what he tells us for the first time is that there's some land involved. This has mostly felt like a romance story, and it is. Uh, But here we learn there's also some land involved. And he says, Naomi is selling the land that belonged to her husband, Elimelech. And this is true. He's not making stuff up. This is part of what asking uh, him to redeem Ruth. That's part of the, of, of the process, as you'll see as we go along here. But he starts with the land piece. Naomi is selling the land that Elimelech owned, right? And, and there's, a, there's some reasons for this. You can look at in, in Leviticus and in the Old Testament law. It actually even goes back to Joshua. Uh, but but the, the, the key thing is that each clan had to retain its land, So you didn't want the different tribes selling off the land that God had given them as their eternal inheritance there in the promised land. And so each clan, and then within the clans, each family was supposed to hold on to their land. They're supposed to keep it. And it would be passed on, right? It would be passed on to the next generation. It wouldn't be inherited and so on. So if a man did not have an heir, what are you going to do? 
right? You, you, you really aren't supposed to leave it to somebody in, you know, if you're in the tribe of Benjamin, you're not supposed to leave it to somebody in the tribe of Manasseh or something like that. You can't, you're not supposed to just leave it to somebody else. It's supposed to go to an heir. And that's where this whole idea of redeeming the land came in. And, and the whole purpose of this, this uh, tradition, this function was to keep the land, was to honor that Levitical requirement, that law requirement, that the land stay with the families. And so there was a system, and people. it was based on your, um, your relationship, how close you were relationally to the person who doesn't have an heir. And so Boaz, we learned in the last chapter, was second in line. Elimelech is dead. He had two sons. They're both dead. They left no sons. What are we going to do with the land? Well, there's a line of people who have a right to buy it. Boaz is number two. But there's somebody, this other guy, he's number one. That's the guy who's sitting and listening to Boaz now. And so Boaz explains all that. Let me read the verses so they're fresh. Uh, It's verses 3 and 4. Then Boaz said to the Redeemer, uh, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative. See, they're related. Our relative Elimelech. And so I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, Tell me that I may know, for there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come next. I come after you. And the man said, I will redeem it. I'll I'll take it. I will redeem it. So the man's response is, sign me up. It was very kind of, it's just very crisp. He doesn't have to think about it a whole long time. He says, I'll take it. Say, why? Why does he say yes? The answer is that this is a great deal. So so from a business perspective, which is where Boaz starts, and it's where this guy starts. From a business perspective, this is a great deal. Uh, He will have to pay some money, right? So he'll have to pay some money to Naomi, and it also appears he actually will have to to take Naomi into his home, and he'll have to, to take care of her, not as a wife, but he becomes responsible for taking care of the widow who comes with the land. But in the long run, there's a pretty good chance he's going to get to keep the land, as the story has been presented to him. That brings up another thing about this whole uh, process, and it's that it was intended to be temporary. And so it was, it, was, it was temporary. If it came about later that for some reason or another there was uh, someone who was a more direct descendant of the original owner, then the owner, then that descendant, or whatever the connection might be, uh, was entitled to get it back. And so, um, and so if the land, the land would revert to someone who was a closer relative. Uh, Naomi, however, is, is older, right? She's already told us this. We know Naomi is past childbearing age. She has said so herself. Her sons are both dead. And so he doesn't know how long Naomi will live, but she'll, she'll die at some point. And when she does, Elimelech's land, there will be no descendants for it to go to. And so he'll get to keep it. There's nobody it's going to revert to. He will be the closest relative and it'll become part of his family's estate. Right, so that's, that's the deal. That's why this is such a good deal for him. He, there's, he, he'll put some money up front. He'll take care of this widow. But in the long run, he has expanded his own footprint, his own uh, share of the inheritance. Now, I, got, I love watching Boaz in this chapter because Boaz is very shrewd. And I mean that in a good way. He's very shrewd. He's, he's wise, right? If you like that word better. Um, and, and here's what I mean. He has already put the best part of the deal on the table. Right? There's, he's got, there's nothing else to offer this guy. From here on, it's all downhill, as far as this other guy thinks. And, and you'll see why. You'll see what I mean when I say that in just a minute. Uh, he has put the, you know, you're, hey, here's a chance for you to get a nice piece of land for your own estate. 
But now the guy says yes, and this, now Boaz says, well, okay, but there, there is some fine print. Right? Have you ever thought you would jump on a deal, but then you read the fine print, and you're like, no, thank you. You ever do that? <laughs> That's what happens here. Because Boaz says, oh, I forgot to tell you about the fine print. And the fine print is verse 5. Verse 5, he says, Then Boaz said, Oh, <laughs> the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Right? Oh, by the way, uh, Naomi's land does come with a, another responsibility. If you buy the land, you also have to marry the widow of Elimelech's son. Did, did you miss that part? Malon got married when he was out in Moab, and the young lady came back. She's here. Maybe you've heard about her. It's Ruth the Moabite. And it's the first time in a while in the book her, her ethnicity's been emphasized, and it's intentional. It's Ruth the Moabite. Now, I don't know why this guy doesn't know this. Maybe he doesn't pay enough attention to the local gossip, but for some reason he, he forgot or he didn't know that Ruth had come back with Naomi. And, and now, but now he knows. Now he knows. Uh, she came back. Uh, she, she was, so so Naomi, Naomi did not come home alone. She came back with Malon's widow, this woman of childbearing age, this widow of Malon. And there's another layer here to the rules. The, the rules of redeeming the land is that if the land has attached to it a widow who is of childbearing age, you have a responsibility. And this is the, the, the tradition. It's in Leviticus. It's called leveret uh, marriage. Uh, and it, was, it, was, it kind of got developed by traditions that, you, that are at work here that you don't necessarily see in the, in the law. But it, it, the idea was that a close relative had to marry a woman of childbearing age if her husband died and produce an heir for the man who died. Right? That was their, their way of dealing with the childlessness and with the inheritance issue. And so that's now what gets invoked with this. Ruth, the Moabite woman, comes with the land. This piece of information changes the whole deal. All the price points are different now for this man, right? It's, it's all different. Why? It's different because now it's too big a sacrifice. It's too big of a sacrifice. Uh, now he will have a much bigger economic exposure because Ruth is in the picture. Why do I say that? Well, a few reasons here. Number one, he's got to take care of Ruth. He's got to take on Ruth. Um, and, and again, I mentioned before that he had to, to, um, to take Naomi under his care. And, and that seems to be how the tradition was, was implemented by their day. I don't think it spells this out in the Mosaic Law, but it was how they had implemented it. So, um, the, the, it, you know, I was thinking about it. It's a little bit like an annuity, at least as far as I understand annuities. By, by selling the land, Naomi would guarantee for herself care until she died. And that would be from the purchaser of the land. So this guy was prepared to do that for one woman, an older woman. He's not prepared to do it for two, because now he's got to take on two women. It's Naomi and Ruth, and Ruth's a lot younger. He would be taking on responsibility for her. Double the commitment, double the food, double the clothing, double all the stuff he's got to prepare. But then, actually, I think more importantly to why he's not interested now is that the whole idea that he might get to keep the land, now that's out the window. Because now he's not going to get to keep the land. It's a very good chance. As long as Ruth is fertile and is able to produce children, uh, he, he, he won't get to keep the land. Because the first child who's born, the, the first son who's born to Ruth and this man, the Redeemer, isn't the Redeemer's son. It's Malon's son. 
which means that boy would be the heir of Elimelech's parcel of land. And so this guy, it'll, he'll, it'll be basically like he's renting it. He'd get to farm that land for a little while, although he'd have to use its produce to take care of Ruth and, and Naomi, and then a little boy and whoever else comes along. But eventually that land's got to go back. It's got to go back to that family. And so the, the, the business deal has soured for this guy. And then on top of that, there's actually one more layer, because this is the part he mentions. He mentions that the reason he gives uh, is, is he says in verse 6, I cannot redeem it lest I repay, impair, lest I impair my own inheritance. And here's what I think he's talking about there. If Ruth has more than one son, the second son and the third son and any others that might come, they're now, actually, they belong to the kinsman redeemer. And so he'll have children now alongside whatever other children he might have. We're never told if he does have any, but if he, he seems like he does because he's worried about it. Uh, and so he'll have other children. He, so let's say he has existing children from a previous marriage or an existing marriage. And those, those children, uh, now their inheritance will get watered down by these other children that are born to Ruth the Moabite. And again, there's where I think some of that, it's subtle, but it's always there. It's always there because they don't have to keep telling us that she's a Moabite. Uh, But again, remember, if you you forget, the Moabites are a people the Israelites don't get along with so well uh, at this point in Israel's history and Moab's history. And so he looks at that and he says, you know, what if she has twins, right? What if I do my duty and, and she has, she gets, she conceives, but she doesn't have one boy, she has two boys. First boy belongs to Malon, second boy is my deal. And, and he's just, he doesn't, that, that is not worth the sacrifice to him. It's not worth the risk. Now here's the thing with all of that, Boaz faces all the same risks. Boaz has all the same exposures, right? I said a, a couple of weeks ago, we don't know if, if he's ever been married. The text never says, but if I had to guess, I would say that he was, and, and a lot of interpreters would say would agree. Uh, it would be very unusual for a man like Boaz to not have married, uh, to be you know middle-aged or, or probably about where he's at. Uh, it would be very highly unusual for him to have not married at some point. So the fact that he doesn't ha- seem to have any wife in the picture now, it, it makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm reading some in, but it's, it's kind of a safe, sanctified guesswork. Uh, I think there's a really good chance that this man uh, may have other children by that first marriage. He may well have that. So he faces the same risk, the same exposures. He might lose his land or part of his land. He's he's attaching himself to a Moabite woman. All of these things are hanging there for him, just like with the other guy. So what's the difference? The difference is loving kindness. The difference is what we have learned about the character of Boaz. See, not everybody was like Boaz. Boaz stood out in his commitment to living out his faith and his commitment to chesed, to the loving kindness of God. And that's why he's willing, right? We come back to this. Why is he willing to sacrifice for others? It's because he, he, he's a believer, right? To take a New Testament term anachronistically and read it backwards, he, he believes in God. He, he's given his life to him and he's going to live out God's kind of love. And so he's going to take that risk. He's willing to to make that sacrifice. Ruth, by the way, did the same thing. I said we'd come back to Ruth. Uh, For her, it was earlier. Uh, Naomi, uh, do you remember chapter one? And I think we emphasized it then, but it's good enough to come back to again. Uh, Naomi tells, Naomi had two daughters-in-law, right? Naomi, she, she had Ruth and she had Orpah. And she told them, she said, go back. 
Go back to Moab. Go back to your families. Go back to your your fathers and your mothers. They'll find new husbands for you. I, I got nothing for you. I got nothing to offer you. And Orpah listened. Or Orpah did the sensible thing. I think it's, it's what I might have done. I think in her position, she did the safe and sensible thing. She took the, 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 the safe route. She went back to the thing that she could count on. She listened to Naomi and she said, you're right. My, my dad will find me another husband. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to Moab. But not Ruth. Not Ruth. Why? Because Ruth is not driven by safety and comfort. Ruth is driven by loving kindness. Boaz labels it as such in chapter 2. He says, we've all heard about your chesed, your loving kindness that you've shown to Naomi. For, we don't know all the details. All we know is it's just laid out there. But Ruth had come to, to cherish her mother-in-law, had come to love Naomi and Naomi's God and Naomi's people. She'd come to love them enough that she was willing to sacrifice everything, to give up her family of origin, to give up Moab, to give up all the rest of it. And so Ruth does it too. And you see, so you see both of these, these main characters in the book. They're both willing to sacrifice for others because of their commitment to God's loving kindness. Number two, we took longer with that one because there's all the background stuff to explain. Uh, number two, the second reason a, a life of loving kindness is better is that it's motivated by the Lord's values. It values what God values. That's what makes loving kindness better. It, 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 almost by definition, loving kindness values what God values. We see this with Boaz here in this chapter. He values the things that God values. And, it, and we see it in particular in two areas um, where he's motivated that way. The first is, is his feelings for Ruth. Right? That Boaz values Ruth. And specifically, he values her noble character. That's what he values. And, and like I, I tried to argue last week, I do think there's some good old-fashioned romance in this. They're all human beings, right? They're not heroes or something. Uh, he's, a, he's a man, she's a woman, so I think there's some of that. But that's not where the emphasis is, right? It's, it's not her, her youthful beauty, however beautiful she may have been. By the way, have you noticed we're never told she's beautiful? We're, we're not, we're, no comment is ever made about Ruth's looks. I, I love that. But she's young, and, and so uh, she's, she's at the, 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 the bloom of her own flower, if I could put it that way. And, but that's never the emphasis. That's never, ever the thing that Boaz mentions. He praises her character. He says so in verse 11. All my fellow, chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 11. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Another translation says, a woman of noble character. All of the townsmen, we all know, Naomi, uh, Ruth, that you are a woman of noble character. In contrast, the other guy, kinsman redeemer, he could not care less about Ruth's noble character. He has no interest at all in what a, a fine young woman she is. Right? All, his only priority, I described it a few moments ago, his only priority is she might put a dent in his net worth. That's what he's worried about. Uh, Proverbs 31, verse 10 uh, and by the way, this is, this is fascinating. Do you know what book in the Hebrew Bible, I told you Ruth is in a different order in the Hebrew order of Scripture versus the way we have it in our English Bibles? The book immediately before Ruth in a Hebrew Bible is Proverbs. And so Proverbs 31, how does Proverbs, 30, how does Proverbs end? Proverbs 31 talks about the woman of noble character, a wife of noble character. Proverbs 31.10, a wife of noble character, exact same wording you find in Ruth. Ruth chapter 3, verse 11. A wife of noble character is worth far more than rubies. This other guy doesn't see it that way. He'll take the rubies, thank you very much. That, that's his perspective on life. But not Boaz. Not Boaz. Boaz values 
what God values. Proverbs 31.10. Boaz values what God values, and that's what drives him. To, to, to take her into his home, to, to, to make the potential sacrifice. It turns out to be uh, no sacrifice at all because it all works so well, but um, he's willing to, to, to take that on. The other place where we see Boaz valuing what God values is really kind of the meta message of the book, and it is simply that Boaz uh, values loving kindness. I just again and again. And, and we see that when he shows it to other people. Remember chapter 2, the way he treats his workers, the way he treats Ruth, the way he sends her away with all that extra food so she can bless her mother-in-law. And so he keeps giving it. He keeps showing God's love to other people because he values it. And then in chapter 3, he's on the receiving end of it. He's on the receiving end of loving kindness. He says so in verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10, the Lord bless you, my daughter, This is after she's proposed marriage. She says, spread your wings over me. He says, the Lord bless you, my daughter, this kindness. And if you didn't figure it out already, that's the third case of chesed in Ruth. You might remember I told you there are three times when the word itself are used, and each one is in a key place. That's the third one. Chapter 3, verse 10. This kindness is greater than that which you even showed earlier to Naomi, for you've not run after the younger men whether rich or poor. You've, you've come for me, he says. You've shown me loving kindness. And so he, you can see he values it because he gives it in chapter 2. You can see he values it because when he receives it, he's so excited, he's so happy that someone has chosen to, to show him God's loving kindness. And the, again, the thing that ties those together is that this is what compels him. This is what motivates uh, Boaz. He values what God values. He sees things. Uh, the way God does. His pri- God's priorities are his priorities, which, which makes us stop and ask, well, how about me? How about us? How about you and me? Do, do we value what God values? Right? This is the opportunity for us. This is one of the, the, the take-home points from this little book for us. Do we, are we striving by the grace of Jesus? It's not legalism. I'm not laying on a burden on, on ourselves here, but, but do we have that mindset that we're going to value the things God values. We're going to value them enough to make actual sacrifices, things that cost us, things that the world says we're crazy for taking them on. Uh, if your marriage is struggling, for example, do, do you value your marriage enough to, to, to get some help, right? to make the sacrifice and to take the risk of, of working on it and, and not getting out, even though you, you maybe even would have a reason to get out? Right? And yes, it might be embarrassing. Yes, it might be costly, but, but do you value it enough? Do you value it enough to, 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 to wrestle with that and, and, and get it done? Uh, do, do you value your integrity? We've talked about integrity as, as a theme in this book. Do we value integrity enough to risk you know, a smaller profit or maybe no profit at all on something? Uh, do we value our children enough to, to make sacrifices for them? Maybe to work less, right? I mean, you read all this stuff, all the emphasis is on work more, you know, put, put them in, a, put them in a, a center or whatever it might be. Or do we value our children enough to work less uh, so that we can take care of them? Or maybe even not at all in certain seasons so that we can make sure they have the best. Uh, do we value the gospel? Do we value the gospel enough to risk telling people about Jesus Christ? Right? There's always a risk. Maybe they're going to make fun of us. Maybe they're going to reject us. Maybe they won't invite us to the barbecue next summer. But do we, do we value the gospel enough to risk telling people about Jesus? Do we value the, the work of the kingdom enough overseas, here at home, to, to give sacrificially to support the work of, of the kingdom? Those are hard questions. I know personally. I ask myself those, every question I put to you or questions I put to myself at different times. Uh, but if we want the best... 
right? If we want the best, if we want to live the best way, then we need to live that way. We need to live the love way. All of that brings us to our last point. Uh, Number three, the, the third reason a life of loving kindness is better is that loving kindness will receive the Lord's reward. This one's the forward-looking one, near future and far future. The loving kindness, those who, who put loving kindness first and who live that way by the grace of God will receive the Lord's reward. The other guy in our story, the other guy, the man who, who changed his mind and said, oh, in that case, no, thank you, I don't want the land. Have you noticed anything funny about this guy? Is there anything odd in the way he's presented in this, in this story? He doesn't have a name. He's got no name. No name. All the way through, the narrator refuses to tell us the man's name. And it's not like the narrator is uh, cheap with names in this book. We know the names of all the other figures, right? Even ones we never meet, we know their names. Elimelech, Malon, Kilion, Orpah, Ruth, Naomi, Obed, uh, you know, Boaz, all these names. The book is filled with names. It's only four chapters long. We know everybody's name except this guy. We don't know his name. And the narrator is actually really committed to this. If you um, study the text, there's at least three places in the text we've looked at this morning, verses 1 through 12. There's at least three places where it would make sense linguistically. It would be, it would be smoother. It would be easier to just tell us his name. And instead, he keeps calling him the kinsman redeemer, the kinsman redeemer. You see that in verse 3, you see it in 6, and you see it in 8. It would be easier to give me a name, but instead he keeps repeating the man's office. There is a reason, and the reason is to drive home the fact that Boaz chose best. Boaz chose best. It's really kind of sad. If you think about this guy, his biggest concern is preserving his own inheritance and his own name. And the two were tied together. I didn't develop that as much as I might have. But, but the, preserving the inheritance is a preservation of your name. And that was one of the reasons it wasn't only about the land. It wasn't just carrying on Elimelech's land. It was carrying on Elimelech's name. And so this guy, he's all concerned about not risking his own name. And as a result, he loses his name. His name disappears, right? Now, in his lifetime, in the short term, I'm sure it was fine. I'm sure the 200 people or so that lived in Bethlehem still knew who he was, and they still called him by his name. But in the big picture, through the lens of eternity, he missed out. He missed out. His name disappears from history. In contrast, Boaz gets God's best. Boaz gets the best. He values what God's value values, and as a result, we're talking about him. Here we are 3,000 years later, and I've just, I'm preaching a nine-week series where we're talking about this guy every single week. Every, he, he, he comes down to us, not as a man whose name disappears, but as one of the great heroes of the faith. And that's just part of his reward. That's just part of it. He also gets Ruth, right? Sometimes the reward is near. He gets Ruth, and there's every indication. The book ends on the note that she was a wonderful wife. She truly was a, a wife of noble character. Right? And so, so he gets Ruth. Uh, moreover, he gets the honor. Uh, this will come after, he, which is why the reward sometimes comes in, in the next life. But he gets the honor of being a near ancestor of King David. Talk about reputation. When David ascends to the throne, and it's about 75 to 100 years later. Uh, when David ascends to the throne, this is the story that's told. 
I think I used the term origin story in one of these sermons along the way. The book of Ruth has several functions. One of them is that this is the origin story of King David. Where did David come from? He came from this man named Boaz and his wife, his Moabite wife, Ruth. And so, so he, this is the story that's told in the golden age of Israel under King David and King Solomon, the story of Boaz. But then it gets even better than that because through David, Boaz is ultimately included in the line of the Messiah. Jesus is a son of David. Jesus is a descendant of David, and, which means Jesus is a descendant of Boaz. In fact, if you look in Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy, Boaz appears in both. Boaz's name is there in, in God's word to this day uh, as one of the, the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah. Boaz loved the way God loves, and because he did, he received the Lord's reward. I saved an article a few years ago about a, a couple who lived in Georgia. I want to tell you about them. Uh, this uh, Christian couple, they lived in one of the suburbs of, uh, of Atlanta. And so it was a pretty safe suburb, safe as any place is. And, and so they didn't really live where all the poverty and the violence is, like many cities have. They, theirs was a pretty safe place to be. Uh, but then a, a friend of theirs contacted them about a woman who needed a place to stay. And I think this friend was like a social worker or something like that. And she'd been working with this woman. And, and this, this woman, she was a, much, a younger woman, uh, she, she needed a place to stay. And I, I say stay, but really what she needed was a place to hide. Uh, she was on the run from, from an abusive boyfriend. They'd tried the, the restraining orders and all that kind of stuff. None of it was working. And so she just needed to, to disappear for a few months to get away from this guy. And uh, this friend thought of this couple, and she checked with them and said, can you, can you take her in? Could she, could she stay with you for a few months? Well, the couple, they, they, um, they did their own checking. They actually went to a police officer friend of theirs at, at church, and um, they said, you know, do, can you tell us anything? And, and uh, he did. He actually did some of the checking he was allowed to do, and he came back and he said, that guy, is, he's bad news. Yeah, the, the name you gave me, he's, he's got a violent record. He's a known dangerous person. Um, you know, the Christian in me says, thing, you know, the Christ, actually what he said was the Christian in me says, do it. But the cop in me says, don't do it. That was the advice they got. The cop in me says, don't do it. Well, they did it. They took his other, the other part of his advice. They, they did it anyway. And they took the risk. They made the sacrifice. They, they took this woman in. Uh, she lived in them for about three months. She, she lived in their home. Uh, and they didn't. The guy never did find her. And, and that, they got her back on her feet. She was eventually able to move out. Uh, a few months later, so, so you know, fast forward, few, she moves out, gets out on her feet. She's okay now. A few months later, she calls them. She calls their house. And uh, it, ha- it was actually Father's Day. That's why she called. She called because it was Father's Day. The wife answered the phone. She asked for the, the man. Usually, she, well, most of her relationship was with the woman. But she said, can I talk to, to him? Can I talk to the man? And uh, he got on the phone, and she said, uh, these are her words, I wanted to thank you for showing me how things ought to be. So think about this young woman, an abusive relationship, all the stuff she must have gone through. But then she lived with this couple for a few months. I wanted to thank you for showing me how things ought to be. By your example, you taught me how a man should love his wife and children. The love in your house spilled over to me. So happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, she said. Sometimes we get to see the reward right away. Right? That's why, why I end with that story. Sometimes we, we show God's love to others, and we, we, do, we see it in the near term. We get to see, you know, we take the risk, we make the sacrifice, we see the fruit, and that's wonderful when that happens. Sometimes God does it that way. Other times we have to wait. 
And we could all give examples of that. Sometimes we don't see the rewards for years, for decades, maybe even sometimes for a whole lifetime, we don't see the reward. But by faith, we'll get there in the fall in Hebrews 11, by faith we know we will receive it. If we love the way God loves, if we make sacrifices for people because we value what God values, then in the end we have that promise that we will receive the Lord's reward. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you so much that you love us. I I, I always come back to that uh, in, in, uh, I think it's in 1 John. It says, we love because you first loved us. We can love because you loved us. And so we start there and thank you that you love us so much. You love us like we see in these stories and like we see in Boaz and Ruth uh, with with an unfathomable, um, just amazing, gracious, kind love. And we thank you for that. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you will, as, as we experience and receive your love, that it will flow out of us to others and that we will be able to love that way uh, as you love through us, the, the people in our lives, people in our families, people in our community, and everywhere you send us to do that. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.